Acts chapter 28, verses 7 through 10. The 276 people who fled from the sinking ship, they all made it safely to shore on the small island of Malta. The islanders, they welcomed the cold, wet passengers with kindness. They made fires for their warmth. If you recall, as Paul was gathering firewood, a snake came out of a piece of wood that he had in his hand. It fastened itself to him. And the islanders concluded that Paul was a murderer. And then when nothing happened to him, they came to the conclusion that he was a god. And that's what we considered last week. So we're picking up at Acts chapter 28, starting in verse 7, and we will read through verse 10. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island, named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously three days. And it happened that the father of Publius was lying in bed, afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery. And Paul went in to see him, and after he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. After this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. They also honored us with many marks of respect, and when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all we needed. This is the word of the Lord. One of the things that we've observed since Paul began his journey by ship to Rome is the impact that he has made on those around him. He has impacted the other passengers on multiple occasions, and he is now impacting the islanders on Malta. As followers of Jesus, we are called to impact those around us. And as we'll see in our text this morning, this impact happens in two ways. First, we must be guided by God, and then we will experience the power of God. If we are guided by God and empowered by the Holy Spirit, then we will make an impact for Jesus Christ. And so let us consider as we think about being guided by God, experiencing the power of God, and then making an impact for God, let's consider first of all the guidance of God. The guidance of God. Malta, as I noted last time, is not a large island. It's about eight miles wide and 18 miles long. And so, as you can imagine, there is not much land available. This meant that there were only a few landowners and many who worked their land holdings. One such, of these, one such landowner, one of these men, was named Publius. Now, this was a common Roman name and suggested by the name that he was a citizen, so we have an idea of his status. And the fact that he was a Roman citizen, the fact that Publius owned land, and is called in our text, the leading man, lets us know of his social importance. Some have suggested that he was the governor of Malta, which could have been the case. But the word translated leading man can also simply mean that he was a prominent person. Whatever the case, we know that Publius was an influential man of means. He invites the passengers to his home. And he shows them much hospitality. He entertains them and feeds them for three days. Now, Publius probably did not open his home to all 276 passengers, 
but instead invited some of the significant figures from the ship, like the captain, the soldiers, and surprisingly, the prisoner, Paul. No doubt by now, Paul's reputation had preceded him, which may have played into his invite, but there's also the possibility, and this is more than likely, the centurion, Julius, who was invited to Publius' house, uh, did not want to let Paul out of his sight since he was in charge of him. Paul, though a prisoner, he had by now earned the respect of Julius the centurion. Uh, his character has been on display. What he said would happen, did happen. Uh, everyone on board the ship had been delivered through the horrific storm. And then nothing had happened to Paul after his encounter with the snake. It's been clear through Paul's words and actions and demeanor that he is a man who can be trusted. It's also clear that Jesus of Nazareth, crucified and risen as Paul claims, is very real to him. Luke, the writer of Acts, and a physician, if you remember his occupation, he's a doctor, is traveling with Paul. Luke is with him at this point. And because of the medical knowledge displayed in the writing, Luke probably accompanied Paul to the residence of Publius. That's what we think. What we learn in verse 8 is that Publius's father was lying in bed afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery. This is very specific wording. Now, dysentery can either be bacterial or amoebic. We know that through modern medicine, either caused by a bacteria or caused by an amoeba. It also causes, because of its effects, severe dehydration. And when accompanied by fever, it is very easily deadly. In the ancient world, there was no understanding of microscopic organisms that cause sicknesses. Most diseases were contributed to supernatural or, or evil causes. Because something like dysentery spreads easily when sanitation conditions are poor, as they generally were in the first century, frequently if one person contracts it, it spreads to many. Dysentery, both bacterial and amoebic, were some of the uh, most common diseases that I treated in Nigeria. With modern antibiotics, the person typically recovered quickly and well with no further effects unless they recontracted it, which was also fairly common. But in the first century, this was not the case. Somehow, Publius's father, who's very sick, has come to Paul's attention and Paul is allowed to go in and see him. Maybe since Luke was a physician, Paul initially accompanied him, or perhaps after three days of observing Paul in his home, Publius himself sensed that Paul could help his father. In his condition, if something doesn't happen, this man is going to die soon. We often picture Paul as the preacher, as the proclaimer of good news, as the apostle to the Gentiles, and he certainly is all these things, but we often don't think of him as Paul the healer. What we see here is Paul simply going in to help somebody who is sick. He felt compassion for him. He was a human being seeking to help another human being. Paul was mindful whether he was collecting wood or preaching or visiting the sick that he represents Jesus Christ. 
Verse 8, we read, Paul went in to see him. This is a simple step. It's also the first step whenever you have an opportunity to minister to another person. Remember, when I say minister, I just mean to serve another person. You have to be intentional. Those who are sick in body or in soul probably will not come to you. You must go to them. Paul enters the sick room. He sees the form of Publius' father lying there with fever. He smells the odor produced by this particular sickness. He takes all of this in. He goes and sees him. You must go and see. This might not be a comfortable experience, but you will never have the opportunity if you don't go and see. We've been talking about in Sunday school how the reason that many churches don't reach people for Christ is because they aren't trying to reach people for Christ. No one ever reached anyone without in some form or fashion making that initial contact. You must go and see. Secondly, we see from the text that Paul prayed. We don't know exactly what Paul prayed, doesn't tell us. We can safely surmise he prayed about the situation and he prayed for Publius' father. Perhaps he prayed for wisdom as to his next steps. God does heal. God not only healed in the first century, he still heals today. Sometimes the Lord brings healing through medication. Sometimes he heals instantaneously. Uh, we would call that supernatural because there's no apparent natural cause for the healing. When we pray for the sick, we should ask God how he wants us to pray for them. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about praying for the sick? We should be doing that for one another. When we pray for the sick, we should ask God how he wants us to pray for them. Perhaps he desires to heal them in that moment. Perhaps he wants to use you to pray for them, for their healing. You should not discount that possibility. Paul must have sensed the Lord wanted to heal Publius' father. And he must have realized in his praying that the next step he should take is to lay hands on the man because that's what he does. What we understand is that Paul received direction from his praying. He did not just assume God desired to heal this man. He didn't just guess about what he was to do. He first prayed. He first communicated with God. And then Paul proceeded. Prayer is not something we do just because we're expected to do it. We pray before acting because it is in prayer that we hear from the Lord. Thirdly, in obedience, Paul laid his hands on the Father. And we read as a result of his praying and laying on of hands that Paul healed him. We, of course, understand that Paul was not the healer. God healed the man through Paul. Paul was the vessel. Paul was the conduit. Whether God chooses to heal in that moment or not, that moment of your praying, he is still God and he is still good. Whether God chooses to use you and your prayers as a means to heal another or not, he is still God. And he is still good. The decision is God's. God can heal. 
or he can choose not to. But he always receives the glory regardless. Our prayers and our obedience to what we hear in prayer pave the way for God to work. Something to note is that this is the only time in the book of Acts where prayer for the sick and the laying on of hands are together. Up to this point, and we're in the last chapter of Acts, we've either seen one or the other, either laying on of hands or of prayer, but not both of them together. When we've read about the laying on of hands, it's been for the purpose, if you recall, of the recipient, the one who's getting hands laid upon him or her, of either receiving the Holy Spirit or being confirmed for a position or a mission. Think back to John and Peter laying their hands on the Samaritans so they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, that was a unique situation, but the Lord was confirming that he was, in fact, offering salvation to the Samaritans also. This is not just for the Jews. It's also for the Samaritans. Think back to chapter 6, when the seven were selected to ensure that certain widows were not being overlooked in the food distribution. What did the apostles do? They laid their hands on these seven men. It's not to say they didn't pray for them. I'm sure they did, but that's not what the text tells us. It talks about laying on of hands. When Paul and Barnabas left on their very first missionary journey, what did the leaders of the church in Antioch do? They laid their hands on them, confirming the call of the Holy Spirit upon their ministry intentions. So in all these cases I just mentioned, the laying on of hands signifies confirmation or agreement. Now, if we carry this idea of confirmation or agreement into the present situation in our text, in the healing of Publius's father, we can say that the laying on of hands was Paul confirming what God desired to do, and that is heal this man. If you're doing what God desires, that is, if your will is in line with God's will, then you will witness God work through you. The reason a lot of Christians don't experience God work through them is because their will is not in line with God's will. And I'm not only limiting this to healing. I'm talking about in any area where God desires that your will line up with his will. The only way that you can make your decisions, make sure the only way you can make sure your decisions are in line with God's intentions is if you are seeking him in prayer. And before you seek him in prayer about a particular situation, you need to go and see. If you're not willing to go and see and then pray about what you should do, you're not very likely to witness God move through you. So be intentional. Be prayerful. Be obedient. And in doing so, you will receive the guidance of God. The guidance of God. Go and see, pray, be obedient to what you hear. And you can rest assured when God guides, when your will is in line with His will, He will be glorified and you will make an impact for Jesus. Next, let's consider the power of God. The power of God in this situation. Luke, the writer of Acts, who is with Paul, also wrote the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 4, we read about a similar account concerning Jesus. Luke chapter 4, verses 38 through 39 say, Then Jesus got up and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law 
was suffering from a high fever. And they asked him to help her. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And she immediately got up and waited on them. So here is what? A very similar situation. Luke intentionally recorded both. In Luke chapter 4 and in Acts chapter 28. Now, Simon Peter's mother-in-law did not have dysentery, but she was very sick with a high fever. And in a time period where there was not fever-reducing pharmaceuticals, a rising temperature could eventually prove fatal. Jesus was asked to come and help her, even as Paul was taken to see Publius' father. In both cases, the sick persons were healed immediately through the power of God. In both cases, more people came to be healed as a result and were healed. And so the similarities are apparent. We can see the similarities in these two accounts. Because of how these accounts obviously relate, it's important that we pay attention to their differences. That's a good Bible study principle. You find two accounts that are similar. Now, how are they different? It's instructive. What are those differences? Well, first of all, and most significantly, Jesus healed by his own power. Paul healed because of the power of Jesus Christ working through him. Jesus stood over Peter's mother-in-law and rebuked the fever. He did not have to ask God to heal her. As the Son of God, Jesus had the power to heal her directly. Anything you do in the power of God, you do because of Jesus. Apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. The only reason that you're motivated to love others as you love yourself is because God first loved you. God demonstrated his love to you, to me at the cross, and he implants his love in us through his Holy Spirit. The only reason you can effectively pray for others is because Jesus always effectively prays for you. Jesus is the great high priest. We read about that in the book of Hebrews. Jesus always lives to make intercession before his Father's throne. What is Jesus doing right now? The Bible tells us he is praying. He is praying in heaven before the throne of his Father. So that means for you and me, when you pray amiss, when you don't pray in God's will, Jesus Christ prays the prayer that you should have prayed if you know everything he knows. That's a relief. That's good for us. The reason that you can pray in God's will and that I can pray in God's will is because the Holy Spirit prays inside of you, prays inside of me. The Holy Spirit, that gift given to every Christian. The only reason you can do God's will is because God has prepared good works beforehand for you to walk in them. And it is faith in Jesus because of his death and resurrection that brings you into a relationship with God so that you might walk in that way which he has prepared for you. It's all about Jesus. Jesus left his disciples with these parting words, Matthew 28, 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority has been given to me. Authority here includes power. It's Jesus' authority that, that healed Peter's mother-in-law. It's Jesus' authority that healed Publius' father. Jesus has all authority over sickness, over darkness, over sin, over death. 
Jesus did not tell his disciples or us to go and make disciples until he assured them and us of his authority that is accessible to us as it was accessible to them. Jesus does not send us out to fend for ourselves. Paul was not alone. We are not alone. We do not fear sin or sickness or the grave. And by the way, all three are related. We do not fear sin, sickness, or the grave because Jesus has triumphed over all of them. If the effectiveness of of my teaching or my witness or my efforts to love others was completely dependent upon me, I would despair. But thank God, all authority has been given to Jesus in heaven that is in the spiritual realm and on earth that is in the natural realm. I don't operate with my own authority, but with his. And what this does is this removes a tremendous amount of pressure to live the Christian life in my own strength. This removes a tremendous amount of pressure to serve God in my own strength. This removes the need to manufacture results or outcomes. You can no more live the Christian life in your own strength than Paul could heal Publius' father in his own strength. And this is a good thing. Any authority, any power, Whatever you possess, it's a gift. But it's also a promise. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go forth and make disciples. The second difference that we observe between this account and the one in Luke chapter 4 is that we read Jesus rebuked the fever. What does this do? Well, it gives us insight into the spiritual dimension of this healing, of Healing in general, for that matter. Now, not every sickness is a direct result of demonic activity, but some sicknesses are. Where do I get this? In Luke chapter 13, we read about Jesus healing a lady who has been bent over, bent double for almost two decades. And Luke described her like this in verse 11 of chapter 13 of his gospel. And there was a woman who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit. That's pretty clear. After healing her, Jesus went went on to say, this woman, Satan has bound for 18 years. This tells us clearly that some bodily ailments are directly tied to dark spiritual forces. Not every sickness is a result of demonic activity, but... Every sickness and disease is a result of sin entering into the world. And this is one reason that Jesus healed people. One reason that Jesus healed people is to show that he had come to reverse the effects of the fall. To deal with the sin problem that not only brings death to the spirit, but also brings death to the body. Where does sickness leave? Lead to, if it's unchecked, it leads to death. And because disease in general is a result of sin, every sickness is an indirect result of evil activity. Now, in saying that, most people who are sick are not sick because of direct demonic influence. 
But anyone who gets sick is sick because we live in a fallen world. That's the reason we get sick. Disease touches the righteous and the unrighteous because we all experience the negative effects of sin. When Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, he rebuked the fever. He dealt with the sickness with spiritual authority. So whether directly caused by an evil spirit or simply a result of living in a fallen world within dying bodies, healing is always a rebuke of the work of the devil. Why? Because healing is undoing the curse. Of course, everyone who is healed in this life is still going to die. Think about that. Each of the people that Jesus healed, that Paul healed, they eventually died. Lazarus was risen from the, from the grave by Jesus, but Lazarus went on to die. Each and every healing in this life is still going to end in death, but each and every healing is a pushback against sin and against its effects. Every single healing is a foretaste of what's to come. A foretaste of that time that we look forward to when there will be no more pain and no more sickness and no more death in the presence of God. And that's what Jesus was demonstrating. And so when Paul healed Publius' father, he was simply pushing back against the devil. He was following the example of the Lord. He was operating with the authority of Jesus Christ through the power provided by the Holy Spirit. So not only was Paul preaching the gospel, which has the power to transform every believing heart, he was demonstrating the power of God over every area of life. We often focus on the, on the spiritual dimension of salvation, that is, forgiveness of sins and justification before God, and reconciliation with God, a new heart with new desires, power over sin. We focus on those, and we should. We should emphasize them. But we should not forget at the same time, believing the gospel in this life will ultimately transform us physically in the next. And every healing in one way or the other is a foretaste of that coming physical resurrection. We read about what happened immediately after Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law in Luke chapter 4, verse 40. While the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and laying hands on each of them, he was healing them. Though we don't see the combination of laying on of hands and healing in Acts, we do obviously see it in the example of Jesus here. So Paul was only doing what his master showed him to do. And in following the lead of his Lord, the power to do what Jesus did was present with Paul. When you are guided by God, when your will is aligned with God's will, and when you receive the power of God, what's going to happen? You're going to make an impact. You're going to make an impact. So thirdly, let's consider, let's consider the impact of God. The impact of God. In verse 9, we read about the result of the healing on the island of Malta. After this has happened, after this happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting 
cured. Healing Publius' father was not the end, but it was the beginning. Everyone who heard knew that a miracle had taken place. The fact that the leading man's father, the leading man on the island, his father was immediately healed of dysentery and fever showed that this was a supernatural healing. It was a direct intervention of God. When I operated a medical clinic in Nigeria, it began simply as a way to help those in the village with basic medications that they did not have access to otherwise. And as Patrick and I proceeded in doing so, the, the Lord blessed our efforts. People got better. It wasn't supernatural healing. Maybe in some cases it was, but for the most part, as far as I could tell, the Lord was simply healing people's bodies through the medicine that he led us to provide to them. And it did not take long for word to spread, not long at all. Within a few months of us beginning, just within our own village, we were receiving more patients than we could handle. They came from distant villages. They came from cities. We had to limit our clinic hours or we would have gotten nothing else done. Just like word spread quickly among these small villages, word spread quickly on this small island. All the sick were streaming to Paul. And guess what? He did not turn them away. He didn't say the healing of God was only for Publius' father. Sorry. It's not what we read. We read the rest who had diseases were getting cured. Why? Was it because Paul was such a great guy? Well, I mean, he was a good guy. He's following Jesus, but that's not the reason. Paul continued to demonstrate the power of God. Healings in the New Testament are for the purpose of pointing people to Jesus, who alone has power over life and death. Their pagan deities, their idols could not help them, but the living God certainly could, and he did. So what's interesting is that we, we don't read about Paul telling people about Jesus Christ. We don't see that in this text, but we know he did. We know he did. Paul always spoke about Jesus. Jesus was the reason that he undertook anything. Jesus was the, the reason he was on his way to Rome to testify before the emperor. Paul writes in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ. Everything Paul said and everything Paul did reflected the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's no way that Paul has been on the ship for weeks with all of these passengers and did not tell them about his Lord and Savior. There's no way that Paul did not speak of the protection of the Lord when he lived after the snake fastened itself to his hand. There's no way Paul did not speak of the one from whom he received the power and the authority to heal. Paul is praying in the name of Jesus. Paul is healing in the name of Jesus. Paul is pointing people toward faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Luke just doesn't write about it explicitly. This is not a missionary journey per se. But we all understand that every day is an opportunity for Paul to proclaim the gospel. We need to guard against compartmentalizing our faith. 
the tendency is to think, I feel like I can manage to talk to somebody about Jesus today, so I think I'll do so. Or, on the other hand, I'm not really feeling it today. However, whether you like it or not, as a Christian, you are a witness. Jesus did not say, go witness to people. Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses. That means wherever you go, whatever you do, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, you are a witness. I am a witness. As a Christian, I am always representing Jesus Christ. As a Christian, you are always representing Jesus Christ. There's not an off button. There's not a vacation from that. There's not a box you can put it in when you feel like putting it over here in this compartment. Paul understood this. He was a witness when he was gathering sticks for the fire. He was a witness when the islanders watched to see if he would die. He was a witness for three days when he was being entertained by Publius. However, he conducted himself, made enough of an impression that Publius brought him in to see his father. Paul was a witness when he prayed. He was a witness when he laid his hands on the older man. He was a witness when he healed him with the power and authority of Jesus Christ. Paul was a witness when the sick islanders streamed to him to receive healing. And so are you. A witness is not the focus. Somebody who's a witness is not the fo focus. What does a witness do? A witness simply relays what he or she has seen and heard and experienced. Your life speaks about your relationship with Jesus Christ. Or should I put it this way? Does your life speak about your relationship with Jesus Christ. What does your life say? Is it evident to other people that you are walking with Jesus? Or do you think of your Christianity as something you practice at certain times, in certain settings? The Word of God does not give us an option to opt out when we want to. You're either all in or you need to evaluate your Christianity. Paul was ready to serve, to pray, to heal, to speak. He was all in. Are you all in? You might not always have the words to say or even know exactly what you should do, but you are always a witness. As a follower of Christ, people look to see if Jesus is on display in your life. We had that conversation this morning. And if they cannot see any difference that Jesus makes, if there's no demonstration of love, no change in your behavior, no grace that extends to others because grace has been extended to you, then you need to seriously consider before the Lord how to allow his presence to fill every area of your life. Christians cannot compartmentalize their faith. There's no option to do so. 
But in saying that, don't get me wrong. You cannot be a witness in your own strength. Before Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses, he said what? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The power that delivered Paul from the sea and from the snake, the power that healed Publius' father, that was not Paul's power. The reason Paul accomplished anything as an effective witness for the Lord Jesus was because he possessed the Holy Spirit. And so do you, if you are a Christian. If you are a Christian, at some point you came to the end of yourself. You realized at some point that you have lived in rebellion against God and against his ways. And the Bible calls this sin. Even if the outside of the cup looked pretty good, you understood that the inside was filthy. And you shrunk back in shame and in guilt when the searching light of God's purity exposed the inner recesses of your heart. And this is exactly what the Holy Spirit does to the non-Christian, for the non-Christian. When He comes, when the Spirit comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. No one ever came to Christ without first feeling undone and broken over the way their sins have offended a holy God. Yet Jesus... The Son of God was born a man. He grew up and he lived a life of spotless obedience. Jesus never incurred God's judgment. He never incurred God's wrath. And this is why John the Baptist proclaimed of him, John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John, as the last of the Old Testament prophets, he used imagery that his audience would understand. Here is the final lamb. All the lambs before him, sacrificed day after day in the temple courts, could not solve the sin problem. They just pointed toward the one who could. That's what all those sacrifices were for. All those sheep and goats and bulls, they pointed toward the one who is yet to come. But John is saying, now he's here. Now he's here. Jesus, the Lamb of God, chosen and spotless, went to the cross. And there on Calvary, he was put to death for sins he did not commit. Jesus suffered judgment for the awful darkness that each of us entertains in our hearts. The wrath of God was poured out upon the final Lamb, across the valley from those temple courts, blood flowing down onto the place of the skull. Jesus did what countless animals before him could not. He took the full punishment for your sins and for mine upon himself. So much for the sin problem. The demands of God's justice are met at the cross. The boundless extent of his love demonstrated at the cross. Jesus suffered death and he rose again so that 
you will only die once, but rise to eternal life. Jesus was separated from the Father, so you do not have to be separated from God for an eternity in hell. But that's not the end. Jesus ascended to heaven. He died, he rose, and he ascended. And why did he ascend? Well, he told his disciples. He tells us he ascended so he could send his Holy Spirit. The Spirit that convicts the unbeliever of sin before salvation. And the Spirit that comes to live inside of the believer after salvation. First conviction, then assurance. If you don't know God, you're under conviction. If you do know the Lord, you have assurance. The same Holy Spirit performing both roles. If you're a Christian, at some point you said, I cannot save myself. I cannot save myself. But I trust that Jesus has done everything necessary to reconcile me to God. Your salvation was provided by God and was a demonstration of the power of God. And guess what? Guess what? So is your witness. You can no more represent Jesus today than you could save yourself yesterday. Jesus did not say, well, I saved you through my death and resurrection. Now go and figure out the rest. <clears throat> no, your witness is just as much a demonstration of the power of God at work in your life today as your salvation witnessed to the power of God at work in your life in the day of your conversion. <clears throat> salvation is by grace, through faith, alone. Unearned, unmerited, it's a gift. Your witness is by grace through faith alone. Unearned, unmerited, it's a gift. You walk with Jesus today the same way you received him. How did you receive him? By faith. Listen to Paul's words in Colossians 2.6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How did you receive him? By faith. How do you walk in him? How are you a witness? By faith. That is your witness, your walk of faith, trusting in God to do in you and through you what you cannot do for yourself. You cannot compartmentalize your Christianity, but you also cannot be a witness for Jesus Christ consistently apart from the Holy Spirit flowing into and filling every area of your life and then flowing out. The power of God means the impact of God through you. If you are a witness all the time in every situation, people will notice, verse 10, they also honored us with many marks of respect. And when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all that we needed. Did Paul make an impact for Jesus Christ? Of course, yes, indeed. In fact, largely or primarily because of Paul's witness, every passenger received a blessing. What did they receive? 
that they received material provision to continue the journey. This tells us that you and I, we have no idea of the impact of our witness. Paul impacted the entire island and every passenger on that ship benefited. Perhaps we, as Christians, should not lament, should not grieve at our loss of status and respect in the culture. Maybe that should not be our reaction when we think about how marginalized Christians are becoming, how on the outs the church is as far as the society views us. Perhaps we should not lament that. Perhaps we should rejoice that regardless of how marginalized and pushed to the perimeter we as followers of Jesus may become, if we are representing Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have no idea the impact of our witness. We have no concept what God will do in us and through us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are back to the basics this morning, just remembering that you are the one who guides us. You are the one who empowers us. And you are the one who impacts others through us. So Lord, help us to trust you to move ourselves out of the way, to realize that we are never off the hook, but we are always representing Jesus Christ. And that is a privilege and a joy. May we see it as such. Lord, strengthen us together as we continue our fellowship around uh, this table, around this symbolic act that you have called us to do together. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.